Revelation chapter 11, let's begin in verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord, where also our Lord was crucified. Then those from the people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the, earth, um, in the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to God of heaven. The second woe was past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. And the time of the end, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. Let's pray. Father, we have so much to look at today as we study this chapter. We pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would teach us and instruct us, Lord. We are so grateful that we get to gaze into the future and see what's going to happen on this earth, Lord. And we we magnify you, we glorify you, we worship you for how great you are and how amazing you are and how righteous you are in your judgments. And we say... um, in our hearts, Lord, to you, that you can do whatever you want with our lives as you wish because you're trustworthy, and we trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. We're still in between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgments, at least through verse 14. We're in between those two trumpet judgments, and we're in the middle of this interlude about which I spoke last week, and we began uh, last week by talking about how there's these interludes in between these different judgments. There was an interlude in between the sixth and seventh seal, 
And now we're seeing an interlude between the sixth and seventh judgment. And the purpose, well, there's a lot of things going on there that we doesn't explicitly say with the purpose of it. But we know that there's a blessing associated with those who read and keep the book of Revelation. And also God's working in John's life at this moment. He's also giving people on the earth time to repent and so forth. So these interludes, they're, they're great for us because it gives us a little time to consider other things uh, as we are uh, processing all these judgments that God is righteously and appropriately laying out uh, on this earth after uh, the rapture of the church. So today we're going to look at this temple which John is instructed to measure and also the two witnesses that he speaks of, these witnesses of God which will testify on his behalf. Now we're going to spend most of our time in the first few verses but we will cover the rest of it but don't worry we're going to be covering the whole thing but there's a lot to cover related to this temple and him measuring it and so forth and I do want to say you're going to have to really be tracking and concentrating, putting your thinking caps on uh, this isn't for, uh, you know, novices. I mean, this, this is, I mean, if you're new to the Lord and you're new to his word, it's going to take a little bit to go through this a few times to get a good handle on it because it's not, it's not something that's just right on the surface. You have to dig a little bit, think a little bit. So um, I do have to cover these things, though, and I have to cover them appropriately as best as I know how. So just know that uh, we'll be digging a little bit deeper this morning. Is, they, is everyone okay with that? All right, all right, okay, you're good with it, okay. Well, let's start in verse 1. He says, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So John is asked to measure this temple, and it's, it's interesting because when you look at how people inter, uh, interpret this temple, you get to a good understanding of their approach to interpreting prophecy, for one, specifically their approach to interpreting the book of Revelation, because there's all kinds of different interpretations related to what this temple is that he's measuring sometimes people say well it's he's describing the church the church is this temple and but he's talking about an altar he's talking about a location he's talking about people that are trying to or attempting to worship there so it's a it's a location this isn't talking about in my view a metaphorical description of the church here it is a literal temple and i believe this is talking about the temple that is yet to be built there were there are, uh, three temples related to Jerusalem, at least before the millennium. There are millennium people sometimes uh, put out there like there's going to be another temple and so forth. There will be sacrifices, and uh, we're, we're told in other parts in the Old Testament where there's a temple during the millennium, but we won't get into that. But normally there's thought of as the, the Solomon, Solomon's temple and then the temple that Zerubbabel uh, built and then Herod later expanded and, the, and that's called the second temple. That's the temple that was there during Jesus' public ministry that was uh, destroyed in uh, A.D. 70 by the Romans and so forth. So there's going to be this third temple, and we've, we've talked about it a little bit. And so th- this, I believe that's what he's talking about. So now we have to put our Jewish thinking caps on again because, again, he's writing to Jews that would know exactly what he's talking about when he's, measure, when he's talking about these things. And he's, he's talking about this temple. They would already immediately know what he would be referring to. So because, it's, because he talks about different things, and we're going to look at them in, in uh, the Old Testament related to desecrating the temple and so forth, breaking the covenant and, and everything. But right now, the Jews are set up for this false Messiah, this Antichrist that's going to be coming. When you ask them, how will you know 
how will you recognize Messiah when, when he comes? They, they always say he'll bring peace, and then many of them will say, at least the Orthodox Jews will say, he'll help us rebuild our temple. And they're, so they're perfectly set up. You know, the Lord Jesus said, I come in my own authority, and you do not receive me, but one will come in his own authority, and you will receive him. So Jesus himself said they're going to receive one that comes in his own authority. They are going to receive him, and they're perfectly set up to receive um, that false messiah. Now, I want us to hold our place here. We're going to go to a few different passages. Turn over to Daniel chapter 9 as we think about this temple and this uh, three and a half years that he speaks about that the Gentiles are going to trample uh, Jerusalem underfoot in. And hold your place in Revelation. Turn over to Daniel chapter 9. And at this point, Daniel's praying. He's asking the Lord for understanding related to captivity because right now he's in Babylon there and um, Israel's been carried away into captivity and he's trying to calculate how much longer they're going to be in captivity. He even mentions there that he's going to he's looked in Jeremiah's writings to kind of calculate it. He's understanding that there's a 70 year captivity which is correct. Uh, Gabriel eventually comes to him and speaks to him and gives him some information and that's what we're going to look at. Look at Daniel chapter 9 And let's begin in verse 24. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. And Daniel receives this. Seventy weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. Know, therefore, and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. So I want to stop there. Weeks, when you see weeks in Daniel, and we, and we see it in other places, he's talking about 70 sets of seven years. So a week is seven years in, uh, of time that has gone by. So what Gabriel's saying to Daniel, he's, he's saying that, there's going to be seven weeks that go by, and something's going to happen. And then you're going to have 62 more sets of seven years that's going to happen before Messiah the Prince comes. Okay, so if, if you can understand that, that'll really help you. Because the chronology is going to pick up, and it's going to, we're going to see it in Revelation kind of be um, you know, uh, lived out in a sense through, through what's going on. Now he says there, the street shall be built and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after 62 weeks... That's 62 weeks of years. That's, in other words, 62 sets of seven-year periods. Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until, and till the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. Now we know right now that's one week is what? It's a set of seven years. It's one set of seven years. So he's going to confirm a covenant with many. So it's not just Israel he's making this covenant with. It's not just Israel. We talk about that a lot. The Antichrist is going to make a peace covenant with Israel. That's true, but it won't be just with Israel. It'll be with other nations. So that's important for us to know. So he's going to confirm a covenant with many for one week or seven years. But in the middle of the week, in the middle of the seven years, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined 
is poured out on the desolate. You're like, huh? What is that? Well, Jesus talked about it, and we'll get to it in a minute. But what does all this mean? It means that there's going to be a decree, a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and the wall. And there was going to be seven weeks of years would transpire so that there are seven sets of seven which transpire between the decree and when the construction is finished. So there's the decree that's made. And then he said uh, seven sevens or 49 years is going to happen. And that's going to be the time of rebuilding in Jerusalem, rebuilding the city, rebuilding the wall and the temple and so forth. Okay, and then he says 62 weeks of years or 62 sets of seven years after that, after the 49 years. There's going to be 432 years after that that will happen. And then Messiah is going to be cut off. Now, historically what happened, and now we can look back on history and we can see what really happened. Artaxerxes made the decree on March 14th, 1445 B.C. 483 years later, that's the 49 years plus the 432 years. So 483 years later, on April 6th, 32 A.D., the Lord Jesus formally presented himself as the Messiah on Palm Sunday. That's the last Sunday before his crucifixion. So to the very day, God said, this is when Messiah is going to come. And what's interesting is, and I want you to turn there, turn, turn over to Luke chapter 19. We won't be coming back to Daniel, so you can leave Daniel behind. Go over to Luke chapter 19. It's very important that you see this for yourself. I could put verses up here, and you'd never have to turn your, in your Bible, but I don't want that. I want you to get to know your Bible born. I want you to know where these books are. I want you to be able to see it for yourself. Very important. That's why... We know how to work PowerPoint. It's not like we can't figure it out. Uh, it's important, though, to see it for yourself. Luke 19, look at verse 41. And it says, Now as he drew near, that is Jesus, he, he saw the city and wept over it. Verse 42, saying, If you had known, even you, especially in, now look at the next three words, this your day. It was prophesied to the very day that he would come in, the things that make for your peace. But now they, have hid, they are hidden from your eyes. For days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you and close you in on every side and level you and your children within you to the ground. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. He's talking about when the temple was destroyed in A.D. 70 there. And so, now, before we tie all this together, I want you to turn to one more passage. Turn to Matthew chapter 24. Just a couple books to the left. Matthew 24. And well, let's see what the Lord Jesus said related to this whole situation. Because it all comes together. Matthew 24. Let's begin in verse 1. Then Jesus went out of the de and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. 
and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of sorrows. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, and will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. Verse 15, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, that's what we just read, standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let him who is on the housetop not go down to take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such has not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But the, for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. Now you can turn to Revelation. I want to tie all of this together. There is a prophetic time clock that is paused right now. There's, another, there's many other prophetic time clocks that are going, especially related to Israel. But in, in terms of the country and the nation and so forth. But remember, he said that there would be these 70 groups of seven years that, that, that occur. Well, when you look at all that has happened up to Jesus' triumphant entry, that only adds up to 69 sevens. There's one more set of seven that needs to happen, that needs to occur. And that is the seven-year tribulation. That's the last 70, that's the last week or the last set of seven years. So when the Antichrist signs that covenant that we read about in Daniel, he's going to break it halfway through. We read it in Daniel. He's going to break it. He's going to break that, that covenant. And so he will break that covenant, and then he will, as, when, as him doing that in the process, he will defile the temple as far as the Jews are concerned. The temple's already defiled in many ways because it speaks of many things that Christ already fulfilled and so forth. We are the temple of the Spirit. So it's not like God is, is endorsing this, but as far as the Jews are concerned, he's, this Antichrist is defiling the temple. And when that occurs... Uh, those that are aligned with him are going to trample Jerusalem for the last three and a half years of the tribulation. They're going to trample that holy city that he speaks of in our passage uh, today. So he's going to trample it. So that's the chronology. That's what's going to happen. That's why the three and a half years, that's why all these, he says three and a half years many different ways. All these different months, you know, time plus a time plus half a time. If you read the King James, there's all these different ways that he describes these three and a half years. So that's what he's doing, and that's will help us make sense now of the rest of the book as we or a chapter rather as we go through why he's having John measure this temple. Okay, look at verse two. But leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. So there's the reason why the 42 months is there at the end of verse 2. It's because this whole three and a half year mark. What causes God to pour out the great tribulation the last three and a half years on these bold judgments that we're going to see coming up, what kind of initiates all of that is that, that Antichrist breaking that peace contract and having the abomination which causes desolation. 
The, the desolation is talking about de- desolating Jerusalem. It's that abomination that causes that Antichrist to go off, fly off the handle, go crazy, turn on the Jews. We, we read how Jesus warned that whole, the Jews during the whole chapter to get out of there. It's all talking about Jews at that time. It's not talking about believers or anything like that in that chapter. Enduring to the end, those that endure to the end shall be saved. It's all talking about the end of the tribulation. It's all based in the tribulation there. That's the whole context there. So he's, he's trying to say to him, don't measure this temple on the outside. The word temple there is talking about the inner temple, the holy place and the most holy place there. Because outside of that, no one else was allowed to go in. And they had these different courts. They had the court of the Gentiles, and they had the court of the men. And, I mean, the court of the women, rather. The court of the men. And then you got inside the temple, or the tabernacle, and there was the, the holy place. And then the most holy place that only the high priest could go in once a year. And that, after his own sins, were um, atoned for, so to speak. So that's why he says it's been given to the Gentiles. Because the Gen- if you go on the Temple Mount right now, in Jerusalem, it's 17 acres. The Dome of the Rock is there. The set, and there's two mosques up there. And it's one of the most, like the third holiest place in Islam there. And the, the whole, there's been a controversy for a long time. How can this third temple ever be built with the Dome of the Rock there, that, this mosque? But if you look how it's laid out and how they've discovered where the Eastern Gate really is and all these, uh, the way they've configured it, that the, they don't have to move that Dome of the Rock at all. That mosque can stay right there because it'll be in the court of the Gentiles where it belongs. So it's, it's, it's all set up for that temple right now. They don't have to start World War III by tearing down the dome, of the, you know, calling in Patriot missiles and destroying it or moving it or whatever. They can just build that third temple right there. The temple's not very big. The temple's building, it's only like uh, 10 yards by 25 yards. It's very, very small, those inward holy place and most holy place. So it doesn't, it's not going to take very long to build. Sometimes you wonder, well, how in three and a half years are they going to build that temple? It's not very big. They can do it. So that helps us understand. Now, verse 3 says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. So they prophesy for three and a half years. Now, who are they? People speculate. Most people believe it's Moses and Elijah. Some people say Enoch because he didn't taste death. He was caught up or raptured and so forth. Most people believe it's Moses and Elijah. We don't know who, they're, who it's going to be for sure, but you look at kind of what, they, what their ministry is and how they conduct themselves, it reminds us a lot of those uh, two, two uh, prophets that fully represent the Old Testament. Mo- a lot of times when people talk about the law, they saw the law of Moses or the books of Moses, and then Elijah is considered one of the greatest, if not the greatest prophet in the Old Testament. So like they both represent the old, the, the, you know, the law and the prophets, and so that, w- that would be a good represent- re- representation of the Old Covenant and trying to reach the Jews and so forth. They've already been here once. They were, were, were here at the Mount of, grad, uh, Mount of Transfiguration. They appeared to Peter, James, and John, which is, he's one of the, he was one of the three there that saw Moses and Elijah. So it's not like they um, haven't been here before, but they have a unique ministry. He says that they are clothed in sackcloth, and that's what the prophets would wear when they were grieving over the condition of the nation, and they would be throwing ashes on their heads and sackcloth and mourning, and, and they're, they're basically mourning the spiritual condition of the people. And so that's the message. They're proclaiming judgment and so forth, but they're also pr- proclaiming the gospel. God is still trying to reach people during this tribulation. We've seen that over and over again, especially when 
They refused to repent. Well, why would they be refusing if God wasn't offering the, the message of hope to them? So he is trying to reach them. Now he further describes them in verse 4. He says, these are two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And again, we have to get caught up a little bit being Gentiles. Most of us are probably Gentiles. We're not Jews. But they would immediately, their minds would flash back to Zechariah chapter 4. When God spoke to Zechariah to speak to Zerubbabel, and, and, and he explained to Zechariah that, that these two, Je, uh, Joshua the priest um, and Zerubbabel there, that, that they were going to be empowered by God. And so God gives them this, this vision of this lampstand with seven lamps that go up, and that each lampstand has a little pipe connected to it, and the pipe... Uh, or actually there's a bowl above the, the lampstands, and then the bowl is connected to these pipes that connect to these two olive trees. It's a vision. And, and it, the whole idea of the vision is that these lampstands are going to have perpetual fuel. This, they're they're going to have oil for their lamps, for the lamps, continuously, perpetually, that God is going to give Zerubbabel and Joshua the strength and the, 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 the power to be able to rebuild the temple and, and Jerusalem and so forth. And that's where he, you know, he said in that prophecy to Zechariah that he was supposed to communicate to Zerubbabel, he said, tell him this, not, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. So don't depend on your own strength. Don't depend on what you have to bring to the table. The, the whole you know, enterprise of trying to do this is so beyond you, so beyond what you're capable of, but you're not depending upon your own power. I'm not expecting you to do this in your own power. I'm going to give you power, and you're going to have an endless supply of that power, just like those lampstands are going to have an endless supply of power from that, those, those olive trees. So it's a beautiful picture. And the application for us is that God has all the power necessary for us to do what, he, to, to do what he's called us to do. God never calls us to anything where he doesn't first give us the grace and the power to do it. You, know, we, you guys, many of you know the famous saying that Pastor Chuck made famous, where God guides, God provides. And we depend upon that. Because he specializes in putting us in impossible situations. Haven't you noticed that? That God puts us in these impossible situations so, so that he can be glorified. So that when he uses our lives and, and he, he makes us capable of doing something that's impossible in the natural, then, then he will come back and he will, he will give us that grace and people will say, God is with you. God is great. God, and God gets the glory. Because if we were so brilliant and amazing then people would point to us. But they can't point to us legitimately because it's not us that do uh, the work and so forth. So maybe that's an encouragement for some of us here today. Maybe you sense I'm just, what God has me in the middle of, it's far over my head. I can't possibly think of doing it. And he must have made a mistake. I mean, how many times have we seen God's people argue with God's calling? You got the wrong, me? Like <laughs> you're, you talking to me? You know, I, you're just serious that I would actually be the one that you would choose to do it? Yes, I haven't made a mistake. But I, I, I choose the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. Not many mighty are called. Not many noble are called. And so the ones that are those things in, in terms of the world standards, God has to do an amazing humbling in them. He has to do so much pruning and breaking to get them to be usable. That's why the Apostle Paul had to go through all the things he went through. And even once God was using him, God had to give him a thorn in the flesh to keep him humble 
and, and not be lifted up in pride for the abundance of the revelations that he was getting. So it, it, God knows who he's getting. So be encouraged today. You're sensing that you're weak and you don't have the power to do what God's called you to do. Ask for his power. Ask to be refilled with his Holy Spirit. There are so many times where I sense that I don't have the power to do something he's calling me to do. And in my heart and in that moment, I ask, God, give me the power right now. Give me the power to be a witness for you. Give me the power to say the right thing, to react the right way, to not return evil for evil. It's so easy for our flesh to do that. We don't need help. I don't know if you've noticed, but your flesh doesn't need help doing the wrong thing. You never ask to be filled with the flesh or whatever. You ask to be filled with the Spirit because our bodies and our, our lives naturally don't have the capacity to please God and to do the things He's called us to do. And so these witnesses are going to have endless power to be His witnesses. And we have the same thing, just like them. Now notice what they're given to protect themselves in verse 5. It says, And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Now, there's no reason to believe this is figurative. This could be spiritual fire. I mean, I don't know. It doesn't burn their mouths. I mean, God can do anything. If he could, I like how people say, if you can believe the first verse in the first chapter of the Bible, God, you know, in the, heavens, or in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You can believe the whole rest of it. He doesn't have a problem with taking something out of nothing. He's not going to have a problem with doing something like this. So people are interpreting this as, these are harsh words he's saying to them. And it's cutting them and devouring their hearts. It's like... Why can't you just believe that God could put fire out of someone's mouth? I mean, sometimes I feel like that when I get up in the morning. It's like, man, that was like, you know, where's the scope? Where's the mouthwash here? Um, but they have this way to defend themselves in that, in that way. Verse 6. These have power to shut heaven. It's talking about rain. So that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And this is, again, this is what... This is what Elijah did. He prayed and it didn't rain for three and a half years. Same time that their ministry is going on here. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Sounds like Moses' ministry to me. When they finish their testimony, the beast that descends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. So here, the Antichrist is allowed to kill them. But look in verse 7 what, what has to happen first. Look at the beginning. When they finish their testimony. He has power over them, but he has limited power. And God is in control of when he, when they can, he can do certain things to them and, and you know, harm them and overcome them and kill them. Because I guarantee you he's going to want to take them out on day one. He's going to want to just, just blow them up, kill them, whatever. But he can't. He can't. Because their testimony isn't finished. But when their testimony is finished, then, he's, then, they're, then the enemy is allowed to overcome them and kill them. And God has, God has a message for them. On the earth at that time, he wants them to hear from these witnesses. He wants them to hear every single part of that message. He doesn't want it cut short. He wants them to hear everything that they need to say. Because God wouldn't be sending witnesses I mean, why is he doing that? Why is he sending witnesses? He's sending witnesses because they need to hear something. They need to hear that this judgment is righteous. They need to hear that they have time to repent. I guarantee you they're going to be giving the gospel and warning, especially about not taking the mark of the beast. Because once people take the mark of the beast, it's over. 
No chance for salvation at that point. Their, their, their eternal destiny is sealed at that very moment. And so they are warning, they are warning, they are warning, they are giving, giving people the invitation to, to trust in Christ and so forth. But nothing happens to them until they finish their testimony. The same with us. When we don't go anywhere in this world until we have finished our testimony. God is going to use us and use us and use us and use us until, according to his timing, according to his plan, we finished our testimony. But God, I haven't finished my testimony. I have this and this and this and this I want to do and say and accomplish and all of that. But he gets to determine when our testimony is finished, when we get promoted to heaven. He gets to decide that, which can help us because when we, we need boldness to preach our, that gospel. We need boldness to be able to go in and be salt and light in all the places he's placed us in in life. So we need to know that in the back of our mind that I'm just like these witnesses. Until my testimony is finished, I'm not going anywhere. Like we pray for Pastor Saeed today, and we've been praying for him for a long time. He's not, he hasn't gone to be with the Lord. God hasn't taken him home. He hasn't finished his testimony. He may be released, he may not be released, but I guarantee you not one second, nanosecond before that's supposed to happen, it's, it's not going to happen. It's going to be exactly according to God's plan. I mean, Paul, when he was in prison, he never said he was the prisoner of Rome. He said, I'm the prisoner of Christ. Who's sovereign? Is, is Rome sovereign over this world or is Christ sovereign over this world? Christ is sovereign over this world. Verse 8. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which, is, uh, which spiritually is Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. That's how bad Jerusalem had gotten. Then those from the people's, tribe, uh, people's tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. Now, of course, God could, have, could do this supernaturally where he allows everybody in the world to see these people, but likely it's speaking of the capacity to see images with TV and satellite and all that, which couldn't have happened before, you know, 50 years ago. So this is interesting. This is our, our time here. And they're not allowed to be put in graves. Now, this is totally abhorrent and disrespectful in our culture, but in that culture, it's 10 times more disrespectful. They usually bury within 24 hours, even today, in that part of the world. They don't, they don't wait around. They, they bury right away. And so for them to leave these bodies out for three and a half days is the, one of the most... And there's no guarantee that they were ever going to bury him. They got interrupted by God, but we don't know that they would have just left him out to rot and, and to be out there until they're gone, just dust. That's how much they hate these prophets. Why do they hate them? They hate, they, they, the excuse will be, oh, I hate what they're doing with the plagues and I hate what they're doing with no rain and all this stuff. But they ultimately hate them because they're telling them the truth about themselves. That's why people don't like our message. We tell them the truth about themselves, that they're the problem, that, that, the, that you can't point to anyone else, that we're sinners, we're our own worst enemy, and we need a Savior. If you're here today, you don't know Christ. You're your own enemy. You're your worst enemy. That sinful nature that you were born with, and I know you didn't ask for it, but that sinful nature that you were born with, that has separated you from a personal relationship with Christ. And until that, that, that uh, relationship is where God wants it to be with forgiveness going on between you and him because you're trusting in what Christ did for you on the cross, that relationship will never be what God wants it to be. And you, you will die in your sins. 
And that's what God doesn't want. He wants you to be forgiven, and he wants you to have uh, to know him and to have eternity with him in your future. Verse 10. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. This is Dead Prophets Day. You know, it's like we're celebrating, yay, they're dead, and they even exchanged gifts for one another. Can you imagine all the tweets that are going to go out? These two, what are they going to call them? They're not going to call them prophets or witnesses. They're going to call them imposters or who knows what horrible thing they're going to say about them, but they're going to be tweeting and putting Facebook posts. They're dead, they're dead, they're dead. They're going to be staring at them for you know three and a half days and, and, and giving gifts and celebrating because of these people, these prophets dying. But God knows how to ruin a party. Look at verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God, that's what we all enjoy, entered them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Now picture this. You have a CNN cameraman and a reporter. The backdrop is the two witnesses lying dead, and they're doing a, a report from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden these guys start getting up and standing. You know, and the cameraman's going, you know, looking at, pointing at, like, the, the reporter's trying to go, no, get the camera back on me, and like, what are you doing? And, you know, and they, they're alive? No way, that can't be possible. They're alive, and they're just, they're, they're, they're horrified. They're, and it says, great fear fell on those who saw them. Why? Because if God can bring someone back to life that they know we're telling them the truth about themselves, and they rejoiced and exchanged gifts, I mean, they, they can still take things back, I guess, you know, if they saved their receipt. Uh, but they exchanged gifts uh, because of these dead prophets, they know they celebrated in their hearts and God brought them back to life. What, what, what is God going to do now to me because of it? I still don't repent, but fear fell on those who saw them. I guess we have to stop sending presents. Verse 12, and they heard a loud voice from heaven saying, come up here. This is the same thing that God told John in chapter 4, verse 1, when we looked at the rapture. Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud and their enemies saw them. Saw them go up. That's going to be on all over the news. It's going to be all over the internet. They're going to be showing these prophets rising up in a cloud out of sight. And they're going to think they, they got spared something. They're going to think that God didn't get back at them and so forth. But God has other ways to, to demonstrate justice. In the name, verse 13, In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. It's talking about Jerusalem. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed. And the rest were afraid and gave glory to God in heaven. So it's this massive earthquake, 7,000 people dying. And them giving glory, they weren't worshiping God. They were giving God credit. They were acknowledging what God uh, did. They weren't worshiping God at all. They were recognizing that God was, was doing something, but they weren't loving him or repenting or anything like that. But there was this great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell 7,000 people were killed then he says in verse 14 the second woe is past behold the third woe is coming quickly the third woe is the seventh trumpet and he blows it in verse 15 then the seventh angel sounded and there were loud voices in heaven 
The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Now, God already owns them. But he's talking about physical possession. You remember, he, this whole thing is related to that scroll and him taking possession of the earth. The enemy has been a squatter all this time and illegally taking possession of this earth. He is in the process of taking back the earth, taking possession of it, and ruling and reigning for a thousand years and beyond. Verse 16, And the 24 elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces. That's the first time we've seen these elders do that. First time we've seen these elders fall on their faces in this way and worship God. That's the best definition of worship, to be on your face before the Lord. And that's what they are doing. Saying, we give, we give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned. So they are worshiping with all of their hearts, worshiping the Lord. So the seventh trumpet finally sounds. It ushers in everything else. Just like with the seals. The seventh seal was the seven trumpets. Now the seventh trumpet is going to break forth and give way to the seven bowl judgments. In chapter 4, they worship the Creator. In chapter 5, they worship God as Redeemer. And now here, they're worshiping God as the conquering King. They're emphasizing His power here at the end of verse 17. Your great power. You have taken great power and reigned. And we should worship Him the same way for His mighty power. He holds everything together by the word of His power. Think about that. He holds every cell together. We don't fully understand why the cells stay together with their chargers and so forth, how they're charged. But God holds everything together by the word of his power. Just think how much power it takes to hold together every cell, every chemical, every part of this, every molecule in this universe he holds together actively right now. That's a lot of power. Now they continue in verse 18. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. And the time of the end, that they should be judged, and that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Notice he says that you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints. And it's a good encouragement for us. We're going to be blessed. We're going to be rewarded for faithfulness. We're going to be rewarded for having the motivation of love. And we get so fixated on the little that we think we're accomplishing for God. All of us can look and say, I am not doing enough. All of us can say he is so much more worthy or he's he's worthy of so much more for my life. And he says, just be faithful with what I've given you. If I wanted you to do more, I would have told you. And I I would have laid it out for you. If you were to do more, I would give you the power to do more. I would give you the grace to do more. And it's easy to forget that there's going to be a time where God says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. And there's going to be a time where he blesses us and blesses us for all the things that he's allowed us to be a part of by his grace and by his power. And it's just a great reminder. Verse 19. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple, and there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. 
So now we see the temple of God. Again, I've said many times that the tabernacle and then after that the temple was a copy of heaven. Copy of that throne room and copy of, of how heaven is laid out. Now we're told in the verse the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. You want to know where the Ark of the Covenant is? People say it's in India. They say it's in all these obscure places. I believe he's talking about the Ark of the Covenant. That's there. Now, it could be the, the, one, the one that was on earth was a copy of the real one that's up there. But my point is, it's that it is, it's a picture of his covenant he made with his people. And it's there in heaven. And it says there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. There's a lot going on. <laughs> How can you have hail? Is there clouds in heaven? How can there be, you know, an earthquake? There's no earth in heaven. You know, how, how does all this happen? I mean, John's doing his best. He's doing his best to describe all of these things. But there's, there's, there's worship going on. There's adoration. There's love. There's, there's expressing that God is worthy, you know, acknowledging how great his power is and how worthy he is to be worshipped. And God is in line with that worship. He, he appreciates our worship. He loves our worship. And, and it, it moves him. It moves heaven. When we worship God, when we worship him, he, he loves it. He receives it. And that's you know, it's so funny in our selfish culture, even comes into the churches where we think worship is supremely for us. And it's not. Worship is supremely for him. Our biggest concern about our worship, when we sing to him or we give or when we serve or whatever it is that we're doing that's expressing worship, we should be thinking about what he thinks about it. Not what other people think about it. What do people think about what I do for him? I mean, that, yeah, we're accountable to other people, and other people are called to exhort us and so forth. But ultimately, all that really matters is what God thinks about our worship. And it matters to him how we worship him, what we do, and, and have we, if we have the right motivation, if we're spirit-directed. All those things are going to be brought up at, the, at the, uh, the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before him and give an account for our lives. So, few applications for us endless power is available for us to in our calling and in our ministries also we won't be promoted to heaven until we have finished our testimony not one second before not one second too late and he gets to turn gets to determine when that testimony is finished and then also thirdly he 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 loves that worship and he gets behind that worship. Again, those lightnings and noises and thunderings and earthquake and a great hill, that's all a response. That's all a response to the worship that's going on there. He's receiving it, and it's beautiful.